thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. It is Q&A time. It's your opportunity to hear the answers to the scientific questions that you have always wondered about, including... I guess that the gene that codes for men having hairy chests and, um, and hairy backs is just an evolutionary advantage in response to some sort of environmental pressure. But how come women don't have beards in response to the same pressures? The Soviet Olympic female shot put team not included. Hello, it's Sunday the 29th of April. Welcome to The Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith and also here this week is Dinah O'Carroll. Hello, Dinah. Hello and also on the way, why life on Earth might owe its diversity to stars blowing themselves up elsewhere in the galaxy. Plus, with a very refreshing kitchen science, also with us is Dave Ansell. Hello, this week I'm taking on this challenge. I recently saw a video which a friend of mine uploaded to YouTube and what it shows is someone holding a bottle of wine in a trainer and bashing it hard against the wall until eventually the cork comes out. So when you forget that corkscrew, can you really get the cork out of a bottle by bashing it inside a trainer against a wall? We'll find out whether it works very shortly. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. Now, we heard from Neil Briscoe, who got in touch with us by email initially, and he's with us now. Hello, Neil. Hello, Chris. You've got a question for us. Yes. On my wrist, I've got a watch. It doesn't need winding up, and it doesn't take a battery. It uses the movement of my wrist to keep it powered. How does that work? Well, it's um, based on a similar principles. If you ever got a sort of um, cup of coffee or something with some foam on the top, and if you spin the coffee, the coffee stays still, um, but as the cup turns round. So what they've got is some weights inside the um, watch, which are free to move. And as you move your wrist around, the weights tend to stay still where, when your wrist is moving. And so they move around and sort of spin around as you move around and go through your daily life. The relative movement between the weights and the watch is connected to a little generator via some gears and cogs. And that charges the battery. And so as long as you keep using it and moving around, it'll charge the battery up and it should keep going. Thank you, Neil. Answer your question? Yes, it does. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. If you'd like to get in touch, if you have a question for us, at Naked Scientists, or there's our Facebook page, facebook.com slash The Naked Scientists. You can also email chris at thenakedscientists.com. Mike is on the line. Hello, Mike. Hey, guys. How are you? Very well, thank you. What can we do for you? I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, and we have a, a very lively springtime here with lots and lots of bugs. And uh, the funny thing is that I find lots of live bugs crawling around, but all the dead ones that I find are lying on their back. Uh, and I wonder how it is that a dead bug gets to be lying on its back. Yeah, it's a bit of a mysterious one, this one, because uh, there's, no, there's no actual research that has gone into looking at this statistically to prove that it's true. But what I think is happening is that when a bug dies, it kind of gets a sort of rigor mortis, essentially, and either um, all of its legs on one side will fold up or um, it will sort of suddenly get a spring in one side of its, of its legs um, and it will sort of flip it over onto its back. Um, and it's also, it could be a question of whether or not it's more stable lying on its back because that's kind of the, the heaviest part and it might be the, the more natural side for it to lie once its legs are all folded up and no longer supporting its body weight. Um, and I have a very sad story to tell, actually. Um, I used to have a pet budgie, and uh, one day I came home from school and I found him lying on his back <laughs> in the bottom of his cage. But obviously that's, you know, when, when he was dead, that was the way he was going to lie down because you know, his, his legs could no longer support him and, and it would be unstable if he would be on his front. So, so he ends up on his back. 
it could also be that quite a lot of bugs spend their time kind of crawling up walls and things and so when they die they might fall off the wall and so it could be that falling with kind of upside down is a the stable way for it to fall through the air so because the, the, the legs are going to act as kind of tails and kind of so it should fall, fall from fall through the air back to upside down and so end up back upside down on the ground yeah but it's interesting that you still get beetles still end up on their backs even though they stay predominantly on the ground in the second life <laughs> dally wave rider has just uh, contacted us to say his view is that they're generally top heavy so if you apply yeah. dave's logic then that could be the reason they topple over uh, dave this one i think is probably perfect for you but maybe we can all have a chat about that it's from trevor hello naked scientists the men's one mile running record is held by Hakim al garouge at 3 minutes 43.13 seconds according to my maths this equates to 16.03 miles per hour needless to say Al Garouge is an elite athlete I go cycling on my not very expensive bike most weekends I usually cover about 20 miles on a ride and my average speed is never less than 16 miles per hour I am not an elite athlete in fact I'm 50 years old weigh 100 kilograms and have a BMI which puts me firmly in the obese range. So my question to you is, why am I able to move at the same speed as an elite athlete for 15 times longer? Especially when you consider that the bike adds 10% to my overall weight. Trevor Barton speaking probably for the majority of us. Dave, what do you think? Why can someone cycle uh, and therefore have an output which is propelling them forward far faster than they can run? There's various different things which could be limiting how fast you can move. I mean, there's various mechanical ones, like the, you might not actually just be able to move your muscles quick enough. Or it might be that if you're pulling a very heavy weight, it's limited by the amount of force you can apply on the weight. Or I think what's in this case is it's limited by the amount of power you can put out. Now, um, an elite athlete is going to be able to put a lot more power out than you are. But if you're using a method of transport which is much more efficient, so um, bikes have been optimised over 150 years to be incredibly efficient, you use very, very little energy to keep them going along. You, in fact, don't need hardly any energy to keep them going along. It's just to accelerate them and just overcome air resistance. There's almost no, resi- no friction there. So um, with a relatively small amount of power, you can be going very, very fast. Whereas running, you've got to be moving all these great big legs around all the time and you actually kind of reach a limit to how fast you can move the legs backwards and forwards you've got to accelerate and decelerate every time you take a step you're basically accelerating a bag of water weighing at least 60 if not 100 kilos which you're elevating and dropping and decelerating with every step aren't you so you're, you're basically having to keep lifting this very heavy bag up and down and it's not an efficient way to move and also you've got your legs which um, you know 10 or 15 kilos each which you're accelerating backwards and forwards so all of that takes you amount of effort whereas on the bike all you've got to do is just push yourself along through a very efficient mechanical train but perhaps one of the reasons why humans are so good at doing long distances for for a long time is because they've only got two legs whereas you know four-legged animals like horses although they can go faster they can't go as fast for as long as as humans can because they've got four things to lift up now this one's uh, quite an interesting one because it's quite i suppose loaded dave um norman hermanson saying i've read your article regarding heating up food in a microwave um Actually, is is actually microwaving things safe? Is it something we should be doing? I guess there's two aspects to this. Um, one of them is is food in a microwave um, dangerous if you've eaten it, and the other one is if you go anywhere near a microwave, is it dangerous? First of all, microwaves are a form of light. They're a form of electromagnetic radiation. They're in the spectrum. You go from sort of um, sort of green, yellow, red to the infrareds, the deep infrareds, and through some millimeter rays. And then there's m- microwaves, and just beyond that, you've got radio waves. And the further down in that direction you go, the less energy each photon of the light has got. Um, light, which is actually dangerous itself, is up beyond the up in the ultraviolet, which can start giving you cancer. So um, microwaves are probably not dangerous they're certainly not dangerous in a kind of giving damaging the cells chemically and giving you cancer kind of way um that you can obviously get too hot from them and over overheat because i mean the, the piece of um, chicken in the microwave obviously is getting damaged um because that way it gets more tasty i mean if you had a microwave with a hole in the back and you stood near it then it would certainly be dangerous um but as long as the microwave is properly designed and you're not standing right up next to it and kind of leaning over it and hugging it then there shouldn't be a problem and it won't do anything to the chemical composition of the food that you're heating up 
Um, it's heating the food up in broadly the same way as any other way. It's just making it hotter. The one difference is that it might not heat it quite as evenly. So you might get parts of the food which have essentially been overheated. And if you overheat food, then you can um, reduce the amount of um, vitamins in it slightly. But it's not going to make it dangerous, but it might make it slightly less good for you. Thank you, Dave. I've got a question here from Jessica Harwood, who says, um, I love your show. Um, I can't keep my fingers out of the raw cookie dough. I know that food poisoning can come from raw eggs. Uh, Does the bacterium get into the eggs from the outside of the shell or can it be passed on to chicken's offspring, for example? Uh, This is quite interesting, actually. So I looked up the numbers for the number of eggs that are thought to be contaminated with salmonella in the UK, where, incidentally, we consume 24 million eggs every day. It's a very huge number. It's nearly 9 billion eggs per year, just in, just in the UK. And the estimate is that about 0.3% of them are carrying salmonella. The number of organisms that are in the egg, in an infected egg, is very low, five or six. And proper storage of the eggs and uh, making sure they're not kept too warm where the bacteria will multiply means that that number stays very low. And if the number stays low, then the chances of, of acquiring the infection is extremely low. You need a very high dose of salmonella to make sure that someone will get infected. And the number of cases of salmonella we get every year are far and away too small to really show that this is having a major impact um, we think there's probably under 10,000 cases of salmonella infection in the UK every year. How does the bug get into the egg in the first place, though? Well, there's a number of routes. One of them is that when chickens catch salmonella, unlike us, where we get symptoms, it doesn't cause a symptom for a chicken. And it can pass from the chicken's ovaries, where it can set up an infection, straight into the egg, and it gets inside the egg via that route. Another way is that chicken shells are relatively porous, and so for something as tiny as a bacterium, it's very easy for them to sneak from the outside, from, say, the chicken faeces, into the egg. And the third route is that some eggs, whilst they leave the chicken pristine, pick up the salmonella from the environment, whether that's the farmyard they're laid in or the factory they're processed in. And so there's no guarantee that an egg is going to be safe or unsafe. The best bet is just to, if there might be a risk for you, just to uh, use your common sense and cook it well. Now, Diana, you were talking about um, human evolution and that kind of thing earlier. Um, You've got an interesting news story for us this week. Tell us about that. Oh, yes. uh, It's one of these great questions in archaeology, and that is, did farming move across Europe through the spread of knowledge or the spread of people? So um, it now looks like that question is somewhat closer to being answered. And researchers at the University of Uppsala in Sweden have this week published a report that indicates that it was the migration of people that brought farming to the continent. So the adoption of farming is seen as one of the great stepping stones in human development. Not only does it permit more people to live off smaller areas of land, but it also means that a population can be supported that has time to do other things like build impressive monuments and develop new technologies. So across the world, there are several areas where agriculture has its origins. And the closest one to Europe is in the Near East, where it's thought that farming started around 11,000 years ago. So farming took around 6,000 years to move across Europe, that's quite slow, but in order to work out how that spread occurred, archaeologists have several clues to work on. Now the usual lines of evidence are ceramics, technology and language, but this Swedish team, led by Pontus Skogland, looked at the problem using the DNA of four 5,000-year-old individuals. Now one of these was a farmer, buried on the Swedish mainland, while the other three were hunter-gatherers that were excavated on the island of Gotland, 250 miles away. And what they found was that the two groups of people had quite different markers for their origins. The hunter-gatherers shared much of their genetics with modern Finnish populations, and the farmer shared a greater proportion of his DNA with Mediterranean populations of today. So this implies that the farmer was a migrant, or at least a descendant of migrants, and that European hunter-gatherer populations were replaced, at least to some degree, although there may have been some admixture. And it looks like farming was indeed spread along by a movement of people rather than a simple transmission of culture and knowledge. And this has actually affected the genetic diversity uh, that we see today in Europe. So you can find out more about this story in the journal Science. Because the gene that gives you the ability to break down lactose, um, which is the major sugar in milk, you can see that uh, appear all of a sudden when farming got started, can't you? Because obviously if people are keeping animals, they're going to start consuming the milk and there would have therefore been quite a strong selective pressure for people who, who had that gene and could consume the milk without getting irritable bowel type syndrome. Yeah, that's true. Um, the domestication of cattle actually came a little bit after the domestication of plants. Um, but it, it does look like the lactose tolerance gene did sort of arise amongst, amongst the farming populations.
Diana, thank you very much. It's The Naked Scientist, Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Diana O'Carroll. If you would like to ask us a science question, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. We've got John with us on the phone. Hello, John. Hello there. What can we do for yourself? Well, I'm calling from Louisville, Kentucky. About 100 years ago when I went to college, in chemistry I learned that the best way to dissolve salts in water or any kind of solvent is to warm it up. And the warmer, the better, and you get more. You can dissolve more salt or sugar or whatever it is. The warmer the temperature of the of the fluid. But I got a soda charger, and I found out quite quickly that the best way to get the most CO2 in the water is to is to chill it. So the colder the water, the more CO2 you get in it. But the warmer the water, the more salt you get into it. I'm yeah. I wonder how that works. It does sound a bit counterintuitive, doesn't it? Um, the simple reason, chemically, is if you are trying to dissolve some salts, let's take table salt, sodium chloride as an example. Sodium chloride consists of sodium ions, Na+, and chloride ions, Cl-, and they're in an ionic lattice where the sodium has given an electron to the chlorine, so you've got the sodium a bit plus and the chloride a bit minus. Now, water has a dipole. What that means is that uh, water molecules, H2O, have an oxygen in the centre which loves electrons and it's a bit minus, and the hydrogen which holds onto its electrons slightly less well ends up being a little bit plus. And this means that when salt mixes with water, the hydrogen ions can grab hold of the chloride because they're minus and the hydrogen is a bit plus. The oxygen can grab onto the sodium and form an interaction, and as a result, the ions want to move into contact with the water molecules. If you warm the solution up, the water molecules have more kinetic energy because the temperature is higher, therefore they will interact with more energy with the salt and therefore they'll find it easier to bring those ions into solution and hang on to them. On the other hand, with gas, it's slightly different. And the best explanation I came across to explain this was in terms of what we call partial pressure. So in other words, the relative proportion of uh, a mixture that a gas makes up. If you increase the temperature of a gas, it wants to expand. So it takes up more space, effectively. The pressure is higher. So if the pressure's higher, the gas wants to take up more room or push harder on other things around it, electrically speaking, and as a result, it's going to find it harder to sit in a solution of water molecules which are all trying to interact with each other. So therefore, when the temperature is higher, gases find it harder to dissolve, but when the temperature is lower, gases dissolve much better. And that's why you find there's actually much more oxygen in the water around the Antarctic, so you get creatures that are very, very big there, compared with warmer water, which can sustain less oxygen tension. And also, if you want to keep your fizzy drinks fizzier, putting them in the fridge works exactly the same way. The CO2 will dissolve better when they're actually cold and in the fridge. Another way to think about it is that um, for salt to dissolve, you've got to break bonds, and that takes energy. So the hotter it is, the more energy there is about, so the easier it is to break those bonds. Um, So the hotter it is, the more likely the salt is to be dissolved. But similarly, for the gas to escape from the water, it sort of takes energy, and therefore, um, because there'll be some bonds in there, so the hotter it is, the more likely it is to be out as a gas. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith, Diana O'Carroll and Dave Ansell. And we're talking science this week. Catherine in Hemel Hempstead said, I'd like to know about seeing things light years away. I understand that we see things when the light arrives uh, to our vision on Earth, but I wanted to ask, when we see objects light years away, are we looking into the past? Um, The answer is, Catherine, effectively, yes, you are, because light travels at uh, 300,000 kilometres a second, very, very fast. And rather than report distances in terms of miles or kilometres or metres in space, it's more convenient to say, well... How long would light, travelling at the speed of light, take to go from where it started to us here on Earth? And actually, it conveniently works out as about a billion miles an hour. So if you sent a radio message, which is a form of light, between the Earth and Pluto, Pluto is about six billion kilometres away, so it would take about six hours for your message on your mobile phone or your signal to go from here to Pluto. And if someone then sent a message back from Pluto, it would again take about six hours for that message to come back. So it would be pretty slow conversation. So in other words, yes, there's been a very big delay in time between the time that uh, your message was sent from one place to the other place and that means a time lapse must have happened because light has a finite speed at which it can travel. Now talking of space, Dave, you saw this intriguing story which suggests that actually other stars blowing themselves to pieces might have an influence of on life on Earth. 
Yeah, that's right. Um, if you look at the diversity of life on Earth, so the number of different species and groups of species called genera, it's varied quite a lot over the last four or 500 million years. It's hard to measure this with big things like mammals and dinosaurs. But if you look at small things like um, marine invertebrates, which fossilise really, really well, it seems to rise rapidly to about 250 million years ago, then dropping rapidly about 200 million years ago. It's been increasing again over the last 100 million years. Now, these trends are always interested geologists, and they've used lots of things to try and explain it. The most effective one being the amount of tectonic activity, which tends to raise the sea level because you've got volcanoes in the sea, so it's a bit like putting stones in a cup so the sea level goes up, which uses lots of shallow seas and more complicated coastlines. And this means you get a very varied marine environment, and so you get more diversity of species because more diversity of um, places for them to live. But it doesn't by any means explain all the changes. Now, Henrik Svensmark has been looking in a completely different direction to explain it. He's been looking at supernovae, which are huge stars exploding at the end of their lives, and he's been looking at them within about 5,000 light years of Earth. And he's then plotted this um, against the amount of damage that you get to meteorites of different ages. And that seems to agree for the last few million years, so that sounds like it's working. So you can put the supernova events at the same points in time that they're having an influence on Earth. So you can show there's a corresponding effect on Earth and then he's tying that to, well, what was life doing at the same time that these things were going off bang and then having an effect on the Earth? That's right. And then he's compared it to the life. And if you take away the effect of tectonic things, it lines up absolutely beautifully. It's an incredibly good fit. Wow. So what would be the theory? What do they think is, is happening then when a star in our close cosmic neighbourhood goes bang? What is it doing to the Earth? How could it influence the Earth to make life flourish? So supernovae are thought to be the source of many of the high-energy particles flying through space called cosmic rays. They crash into the atmosphere, forming trails of ions, which can, in some conditions, form clouds, which cools down the Earth. And in a cool Earth, there's more variety of habitats because you've got the polar habitats and then you've got the habitats around the equator. He's also looked at the number of closed supernovae and the number of kind of unexplained, very rapid cooling events on Earth. And the periods when there should be quite a lot of supernovae, there's quite a lot of these unexplained cooling effects. So supernovae could be having a huge effect on us. It's amazing to think that we're being influenced not just by our own star, the sun, but by stars which don't even exist anymore and uh, may have been billions of miles away. There's also a really interesting paper that's been published this week. It's in the journal Nature. And this may explain why people get heart failure. Now, heart failure is very common. And in fact, it's often a consequence of having a heart attack. But it's where the heart doesn't pump enough blood to supply the needs of the body. But it's often associated with inflammation in the heart. So why should the heart become inflamed in the first place? Well, there's a researcher called Kinya Otsu who's at King's College, and what he and his colleagues have done is to use an animal model of heart failure where they apply extra load to the heart in animals, and this makes it eventually fail. And in experimental animals, they looked at the heart and confirmed that you get lots of cells moving in from the immune system into a failing heart. But they also found something very interesting, which is that these hearts that are failing have very high levels of DNA in parts of the cells that are normally the rubbish bin where cells are breaking things down. So the cells seem to be breaking down DNA. They wondered whether the two might be linked. So first of all, what they did is to make some animals that they'd knocked out a gene called a DNA's 2A, which breaks down DNA in the phagolysosome, the part of the cell that breaks down rubbish. And sure enough, these modified animals had a very high propensity to developing heart failure and at the same time had large amounts of inflammation in their hearts. So then they thought, well, what is this DNA and why should the inflammation occur at the same time? So then they looked at the DNA that was being broken down and it wasn't genomic DNA, in other words, DNA from your chromosomes. In fact, it was your mitochondrial DNA. Mitochondria are these tiny structures inside cells that give cells their ability to make energy. And originally, billions of years ago, they were free-living bacteria. And at some point in our evolution, cells teamed up with these bacteria and they gave the bacteria a home in return for the bacteria, giving the cell energy. And just like the bacteria that they once were, these mitochondria contain their own DNA. They've got a little circle of DNA called mitochondrial DNA. And because it has microbial origins, it looks, even today, still like bacterial DNA. And so what the team have realised is that this DNA is triggering the immune system because we have in our immune system a special set of receptors called toll-like receptors, TLR, and these recognise bacterial DNA. 
And what they have found out is going on is that when the heart gets stressed by heart failure, it starts to break down messed up mitochondria. And that includes breaking down their DNA. And somehow this DNA then activates these TLR immune receptors and makes the immune system inflame the heart. And this puts further stress on the heart, causing it to fail further and increasing the rate of heart failure. And they proved that that was the case by actually administering drugs to animals that can block this TLR receptor. And also they knocked out the gene in another group of animals for the receptor and showed that they didn't get the same degree of heart failure. So it seems that this inflammation is absolutely responsible for heart failure and it also seems that it could be a very good way to intervene and stop the problem. So what's causing the mitochondria to get into trouble in the first place? Well, they speculate that when you have a heart that is stressed because it's under load beyond that which it's capable of coping with, this puts the, the cells under biochemical stress. So the mitochondria try to work harder, which means that they wear out sooner, which means the cells then try to break them down in a process called autophagy because normally cells, when they break down waste products, they break them down harmlessly inside the cell and the immune system never gets the chance to look at them. But when the cells are stressed, they can't process the material and break it down harmlessly in this way anymore. And this rubbish starts to accumulate. And then the immune system gets the chance to come and inspect what's going on in the cell. And that's what then drives the response. So if you could stop the cells getting stressed in the first place, or prevent the immune system from inflaming the heart muscle and compounding the stress, you'd probably have a new way perhaps to intervene and treat people for heart failure without having to resort to other mechanisms, which really, in the grand scheme of things, have limited benefit at the moment. Now, scientists have also this week homed in on the parts of a pigeon's brain that enable it to use the Earth's magnetic field to navigate. And Louise Anthony has been finding out a bit more. Pigeons, as well as a host of other species, including bats and fish, are known to be sensitive to magnetic fields and they appear to be able to use them to find their way around. But exactly how these animals detect and then process this information neurologically has always remained a grey area. Now, working with homing pigeons, David Dickman from the Baylor School of Medicine in Texas, together with his colleague Lurching Wu, has identified the parts of the brain that give these animals their mental compasses. Dickman and Wu reasoned that nerve cells involved in decoding magnetic signals should be activated by changes in the surrounding magnetic field. So to track down these cells, as David Dickman explains, they began by exposing a group of birds to a changing artificial magnetic field and then looked in the animals' brains for nerve cells that had switched on a gene called CFOS, which is an indicator of nerve cell activity. We put birds inside a magnetic field, rotated the magnetic field around their heads, then reacted the brain tissue for the CFOS antibody, and we found four major locations that were strongly activated by magnetic stimulation. One of them turned out to be in the vestibular nuclei. Another one turned out to be in the anterior thalamus, an area that processes spatial information. And the third was the hippocampus, which is well known to be a spatial memory center. And the fourth was an area of association visual cortex. These are all regions that are known to be involved in navigation functions and spatial orientation. In other words, knowing where you are, what position you're in, and in which direction you're pointing. Next, to find out how these nerve cells might be processing magnetic information, Dickman and Wu placed seven pigeons in changing magnetic fields of a similar strength to the Earth's own magnetic field, and then used electrodes to record the nerve activity in one of the brain regions they'd already identified, the vestibular nuclei, which also helped to control balance. We placed birds in the dark because there's a competing idea that the retina has a photopigment contained inside the retina itself, which... Uh, could be reactive under certain wavelengths of light to magnetic field. So we didn't want to activate those receptors if they exist. So we put the birds in total darkness, and they were motionless because we didn't want to activate the vestibular system since we were recording from vestibular cells. So while they sat there quiet, um, we rotated this magnetic field around them in different planes, and we found that the neurons are all tuned to a specific direction in space. And the tuning is really interesting because the neurons respond when the magnetic field is pointed basically in all directions except one plane where they're silent. And they build up the response so that when the magnetic field is pointing in one direction, the cell likes it the most. And when it's pointing opposite that, its cell likes it the least. And the responses of those cells effectively signal the strength, 
direction and the polarity of the magnetic field. In other words, whether the bird is pointing north to south or south to north. And this means that the birds can most likely use this information to work out where they are. If you look at the Earth's magnetic field, what you see is that the field lines come out of the south magnetic pole, they circle the Earth, and they go back in in the north magnetic pole. And they come out of the Earth at different angles, depending upon whether it's the south, north, or the equator. It's 90 degrees at the poles, and it's zero at the equator, and then it varies systematically between the equator and the poles. That's called inclination angle. These neurons, theoretically, could use that inclination angle to tell you your latitude. But what they still don't know is how the birds are actually detecting the magnetic field in the first place. So whether it's a magnetically sensitive chemical in the eye or deposits of an ion-containing mineral like magnetite, that's still a mystery. But there are several possibilities. There are three candidates out there, the retina, using these photopigments, and we've never looked at retinal cells before. The inner ear, where these iron particles that were found by another group, and then the beak... Although the beak looks like the magnetite is macrophages, it could be that there's still a mechanism there but is yet to be discovered. There are behavioral studies that suggest that the beak is involved. We really don't know. We'll probably go after the uh, receptor in the inner ear first uh, because we're familiar with that territory and we've done some preliminary experiments about that already. So for the moment at least, the jury is still out. But in the meantime, there are some very real potential spin-offs from this work that could benefit us too. Humans often have disruptions in their spatial orientation ability, particularly people with dementia or people that have inner ear disease, such as Meniere's disease. They find it very difficult to sometimes even you know, find their way to the kitchen if the lights are turned off and that kind of stuff, or they lose their way when they're driving from home to the grocery store. So we have an idea now about how the brain is taking some signals and feeding into this uh, what we call the navigation network. So we're, we're hoping that that will lend us some clues that we might be able to use in the future to help people with spatial orientation and spatial memory loss. David Dickman speaking with Louise Anthony, and that work was published this week in the journal Science. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Dave Ansell and with Diana O'Carroll. It's our Science Q&A week this week. Uh, We're going to be investigating quite soon whether or not you can uncork a bottle of wine without a corkscrew. You do it by slamming the bottle, apparently, inside something like a trainer against a hard surface. Does it work? Dave's been doing the experiment and we'll find out. Diana, uh, Richard Almand uh, has got in touch and he's from New Zealand. He sent us an email and he says, I love listening to your show. How long does it take a drop of blood to do a full circuit of the circulatory system, please? Okay, well, I think the answer is going to be about a minute for most people. Um, So you have about five litres of blood in your body, at least most people do, and the average heart pumps about 70 mils of blood out with each beat. And uh, the next bit is going to depend on your resting heart rate. I think uh, most people have an average resting heart rate of about 70 beats a minute, somewhere around there. So if you multiply the amount of blood that the heart can pump by the number of beats in a minute, you actually get about 4.9 litres of blood, which is almost your whole body's worth of blood so in a minute you will pump the entire blood around your body thank you diana i think getting to the heart of a similar question ahmed's on the phone hello ahmed hi chris what can we do for yourself uh i was wondering about the fibers in the muscle of the heart i understand that the muscles in the rest of our body become uh thicker and bigger as a response to intense workouts such as weights or anything like that but when we do uh, cardio-intensive workouts, why does that not, which, you know, cardio is, is more of a heart training exercise, why does that not create a bigger, physically bigger heart? Well, actually, it does cause a bigger heart, and it can happen for both good reasons and bad reasons. If you have a very high workload on your heart because you, for instance, have high blood pressure all the time, then you can develop cardiac hypertrophy, and this is where the muscle of the heart becomes thickened and bigger and beefier in order to do more work, in order to overcome the extra load applied to the heart by the high blood pressure. Now, that's a bad thing, obviously, and sometimes the muscle can become so big that, in fact, it has an oxygen demand which is bigger than the coronary arteries are capable of delivering in the form of blood. And so people can get an angina, pain in their chest, caused by the heart not getting enough oxygen because the heart has become pathologically large. 
more normally, though, people who do a lot of exercise along the lines of what you've been describing, Olympic athletes, for example, footballers, for example, you'll often hear them say that their resting pulse rate is really low. They might say, for example, that compared with a normal person who has a resting pulse rate of, say, 70 beats per minute, their heart beats only 40, or maybe in some cases 30 times per minute. Now, the reason it can get away with beating more slowly is because the heart has become larger in response to their regular training and the demands they place upon it. And that means that because it's got bigger, it's working more efficiently. So with every beat of the heart, it actually pumps out more blood than a smaller heart in an untrained person. So as a result, they don't have to make their heart beat as often because every time it does beat, it pumps out two beats worth of blood. So their pulse rate can come down. And if you measure the maximum output from their heart you'll find that their maximum output can be, say, 30 litres in a minute when they're working really hard, compared with, say, 25 litres in someone who's unfit and untrained. But the maximum number of beats their heart can make in a minute will be much lower, and that's because a bigger heart takes longer to fill up with blood, so they slow down their pulse rate and they just make their heart eject more. And that form of cardiac enlargement is not thought to be uh, bad for you, it's a physiological response to increased workload, and in the short term at least, we think that it isn't harmful. David Frederick on Facebook, Dave, is wondering, following up from your microwave things earlier, when he microwaves raspberries, why on earth would you do that? They sometimes cause sparking and zapping sounds. Why is this? Um, I imagine it's um, related to a similarly slightly odd thing to do, which is grapes. Because if you get um, a grape, cut it in half, and then get it's an almost cut it in half, so you've got a little bit of skin holding the two together, and then kind of open it up and put it in the centre of the microwave where there's lots and lots of power, um, what you can get is a microwave cooks things by forcing electric currents to flow backwards and forwards in them. And you end up with a lot of current flowing through this little um, bit of skin that then dries out, and then you get the current wanting to flow across the gap, and it actually jumps as a spark. So my guess what is happening with your raspberries is you're getting two raspberries very close together or just touching that gap then dries out and it sparks across the gap. Also the raspberries are, are lots of little mini segments aren't they and I wonder if maybe each of the mini segments are behaving a bit like a half of a grape with the segment next door do you think? It's possible although I would have thought that the contact between them was fairly good especially as soon as it starts to heat up and go mushy. But basically the, the physics behind what you've said uh, applies. Uh, now, um, Chitra Naranyan on Facebook, Dave, is wondering if you can tell us why do doors creak? Sorry about that. It's a lovely sound. Um, so if you have a door which is getting a bit old, getting a bit rusty, and you haven't oiled it properly, um, you get a very similar thing to brake squealing or, in fact, um, dragging fingernails down a blackboard it's to do with stick and slip what happens is that you get quite a lot of friction and there's a lot more friction when two things are stationary than when they're moving so uh, essentially the, t the two bits of the hinge lock together then the hinge bends a bit and then the force gets enough for it to break and then it jumps forward a bit and then it stops and then it bends a bit and then it jumps forward and this jumping can happen for uh, the sort of pitches horrible kind of 50 100 hertz and so you get jump 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 which you hear is this kind of noise which is a horrible creak noise laying the facts bare the naked scientists Only discovered in the 1970s, hydrothermal vents have turned out to be some of the most fascinating ecosystems on Earth. These deep-sea geysers are teeming with unusual life. But there are some fundamental questions scientists studying hydrothermal vents don't yet know the answers to. Claire Waltz at the University of Leeds, for instance, is investigating food webs. What does everything living in these sediments around hydrothermal vents eat? Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham went to visit Claire's lab in Leeds. She began by showing him the freezer where the samples are kept at minus 80 degrees. I have to ask you not to touch bits of this freezer because I've got nice big blue insulated gloves on. If you touch it, you'll get stuck to it and then we have serious problems. Oh, you can feel the cold. It's like a slice of Antarctica just there. OK, I'm not touching it. OK, I'm going to open this bottom drawer here. So this is the one that my samples are kept in. And these literally bags of mud are mine. You can hear the uh, crackle. That's just a plastic bag, but it's because it's so cold it sounds really brittle. So we'll take these out, put them on the bench and have a quick look. So we've got, what, frozen 
sediment samples from, from where? This site um, is called Hook Ridge, and it's what we call a diffuse hydrothermal venting site. Instead of this kind of rocky bottom with uh, chimneys, there's actually a cover of soft sediment or mud over that, so the hydrothermal fluids are coming bubbling out through the mud. I have to say, if we can look through the bag, again, I'm not going to touch that, it just looks like crisp-sized bags of frozen mud. That is actually what it it is, but they're very carefully labelled bags of frozen mud. And appearances can be deceptive because this sediment is full of life. So we've come into the microscopy lab and, appropriately enough, there is a microscope. And under there you've got a a, a sizeable Petri dish. This is a sample that was actually preserved slightly differently. It was pickled, if you like, in formalin. And what I've done this morning is I've uh, taken the whole sediment sample and I've sieved it. And what we're looking at is the coarser fraction, greater than 250 microns in size. That's a quarter of a millimetre, so still quite small. And we're going to have a look at it under the microscope to see what animals are living in the sediment that we can pick out for analysis. And so what are you trying to find out? I'm interested in carbon cycling. That really means where is the food coming from for this ecosystem and how does that food travel through the ecosystem? So who is eating what and who is eating who else? And how are you doing that? At a hydrothermal vent system, we have a really interesting phenomenon in that the biological community there has two different sources of food. Mostly in the deep sea, there's only one source of food. That's food that falls down from the surface ocean, from plant production in the surface ocean. At a hydrothermal vent, there are really interesting microbial communities that can also make food, just like plants do at the surface. And instead of using sunlight, because there's no sunlight at 1,500 metres in the ocean, they use the chemical energy from all of these strange volcanic fluids seeping out of the sea floor. So this biological community has a choice of two different food types. It can eat algae sinking from the surface of the ocean or it can eat bacteria that are producing food in situ on the sea floor. And the thing we don't know is to what extent is this community reliant on those two different types of food? So where's the carbon coming from? How is it being cycled? And how are you trying to look at that, investigate that? Okay, so I I did some experiments where I collected sediment cores. I collected tubes full of sediment that had all of their natural structure and their natural biology intact. And I then added chemical labels to those cores. Some of that was chemically labelled algae, and in different cores I added a chemical label that the in situ bacteria would take up. I'm then going to pick out the animals from these sediment samples and see which animals ate which different type of food. And is it quite exciting to be working on something in an environment that really we've only started exploring in the last 10, 20 years? Yes, that's fantastically exciting. I feel very privileged to be in this position of uh, doing something for the first time. It's really exploratory, and that's fantastically exciting. Claire Walds at the University of Leeds, talking with Richard Hollingham. And you can find the latest Planet Earth podcast on our website at nakedscientists.com slash planet earth. It's the Naked Scientists. Let's uh, hack on with the questions. Dave, I think this is probably one which is ideal for your department. Hello, Naked Scientists. This is Pia from Australia, and I'd like to ask a question. All other things being equal, is it more efficient to keep the kitchen freezer packed to its limits, or does it take less energy to keep it going if it's empty? I don't know if I can speak for the others here, but my freeze is pretty chaotic. You open the door and most of the stuff falls out anyway. I mean, Diana, you equivalently chaotic? I don't know. I'm a starving student, so uh, quite often it's empty. But it's something I've thought about, and I think it must have something to do with how often you open and close the door. Yeah, there's a couple of things which might affect the efficiency of your freezer, depending on how much you've got in there. Um, I guess first, if you put something warm in there, then you're going to take a load of energy to pump the heat out of it. But assuming you've already got the stuff cold, which is best. Um, If you're an upright freezer, when you open the door, all the cold air is denser than the warm air, so all the cold air falls out. You're essentially putting in heat by all the warm air, which is taking its place, and you shut the door, and it's got to re-pump that heat out again. So the more stuff that's in there, the less room there is for warm air to go in and push cold air out. So the better, then? That is correct up to a point. If you you essentially got your freezer and jam every corner absolutely full of stuff you can then get other problems because the way the freezer knows how warm it is is you've got a thermostat in there and if 
the thermostat, if they're cold, essentially, the cold air can't get from the cooling elements to the thermostat, then it's going to keep making them colder and colder and colder. And the bigger the temperature difference the freezer's got to work from between the room and the temperature inside the freezer, the harder work it is and so the more energy it uses. So if the cooling elements are actually at minus 30 rather than minus 20, that's going to be costing you electricity. So fairly full, but not so full that air can't circulate at all. So I guess it is a good idea to uh, defrost your freezer occasionally so you don't get that build-up of huge chunks of ice if you haven't got a frost-free freezer. Yeah, especially that is even worse than filling your freezer right up because it insulates the cooling part of your freezer. So the cooling part's going to get even colder, which then causes even more ice. It's a horrible, vicious circle and you end up running your freezer continuously and not actually getting with a very cold freezer. Sounds very much like the freezer I have at home. Uh, Steve Slack has been in touch by email, chris at nakedscientist.com. I think you're really the only person qualified to answer this, Diana, because if any of the rest of us try to, then we will be shot or lynched. Steve Slack says, is there such a thing as a girl's throw? I don't think you'll be shot. I think people start throwing things at you. Okay, so so I had a little think about this. And uh, first of all, we probably need to define what a girl's throw is. Um, And I think it's probably when uh, you try and throw something overarm and you just use perhaps the lower portion of your arm. So so the upper portion where your humerus and bicep and all that is doesn't really move. And it's just your your forearm that's that's doing the throwing and and your hand, of course. Um, So the question is, you know, why would only a girl be throwing in this manner? And I, I think it's actually probably something that's a bit more cultural than necessarily anatomical. Because like so, learned helplessness, is what yeah, you're saying. Learned helplessness. But anyway, I think perhaps uh, maybe a few decades ago, perhaps not so much now, the practice was to take your daughter and give her dolls and make her do girly exercises. Um, and then with your boys, you'd take them outside and play football with them or play catch and throw and, and that kind of thing. So I think for a lot of girls, they probably just didn't learn the techniques of throwing properly and so the the sort of automatic response to throwing something is to kind of do it in this funny overarm way and perhaps not underarm or using the proper sort of you know baseball throw yeah because i i was quite not a very outdoors boy and it took me until i was about 11 or 12 to learn how to do that the throw which seems to involve throwing your elbow forward storing energy in your elbow and then flicking your hand over which gets that you do a physicist's throw so do do you (laughs) analyze this in a sort of physics way and go oh how can i impart the maximum uh, kinetic energy to the ball by by adopting the following anatomical posture it was more i noticed that when i did this anatomical thing that it seemed to be working rather well both kind of you can do it sideways and upright diana and now with a roundup of the other science stories hitting the headlines this week here's mira senthillingham high resolution 3d images of human tissues can now be created using a technique developed by scientists at the university of leeds By scanning hundreds of slides of sliced tissue segments at once and converting these into high-resolution digital images, the software developed by Derek McGee then aligns these images to produce detailed, multicoloured visuals in three dimensions, with over 400 created to date. The technique can be used on numerous tissue types, including tumours, and enables samples to be rotated on a computer screen and monitored from any angle. Within the human body... Some things are inherently 3D structures, and looking at them 2D does not give you the same information. So I'll take as an example blood vessels. Blood vessels are a branching structure of tubes. If you cut a tube as a 2D section, all you see is an ellipse. So if you look at a blood vessel in 3D, you can actually see this branching structure, and you can relate it to the structure around it. For example, a tumour, if that's very close by, then you can see, well, has that tumour got its own blood supply, or is it a very early-stage tumour that has yet to develop its own blood supply? A drug to treat the symptoms of autism has been identified by scientists at the National Institute of Mental Health in the US. Working with inbred mice displaying signs of autism such as unusual social interactions, excessive jumping and repetitive self-grooming, Jacqueline Crawley and colleagues found that when these mice were injected with the compound GRN529, which regulates glutamate release in the brain, these behaviours were significantly reduced. Treatment with this compound that reduces excitatory glutamate neurotransmission in the brain, reduces repetitive behaviors, reduces stereotype jumping, improves some of the social deficits that are seen in these mice. We may be able to develop pharmacological treatments that might be beneficial to children and adults who have autism. The challenge, of course, is to find compounds 
that will be effective in people, but it's one of the most promising leads that we've seen for quite a long time. Large wind farms may be affecting local temperatures and climate in the U.S. With the U.S. wind industry growing rapidly in recent years, scientists at the University of Illinois analyzed satellite data for the land surface temperatures of four of the world's largest wind farms located in Texas to see their effect on local temperatures from 2003 to 2011. The team found a warming effect. Of 0.72 degrees Celsius per decade when compared to nearby regions lacking these farms. Shumnath Bodhiroy co-authored the study. Turbulence generated by the spinning of the wind turbine rotors mixes air up and down, and the key impact of this is a warming effect near the surface and on the land surface at night. Now, wind power does not generate almost any carbon dioxide emissions, and hence, wind power is going to be a part of the solution to the climate change problem. Understanding the impacts of wind farms will help us develop efficient adaptation and management strategies, and thereby contribute to a long-term sustainability of wind power. And finally, subordinate members of a meerkat social group are the best at solving problems. Alex Thornton from the University of Cambridge set tasks for seven groups of wild meerkats, where the animals were required to open or break into transparent containers to reach the scorpion supper located inside. The team found that lower-ranking members of the group, and particularly males at this rank, were the most successful at solving the task.、And、the reason for this is probably that these individuals are unable to outcompete others. So unlike the dominants, they can't bully their way to get. Food rewards, so there are advantages for them to try and find out new ways of solving problems. And for the males, this is particularly advantageous because they're the sex that disperses, that goes out to seek mating opportunities. So they're going to be encountering new difficulties in the world, and so it will make sense for them to try and find out ways of solving new problems. And that work was published in the journal Animal Behaviour. Mira Senthalingam with our Naked Scientists News Flash, and you can find more transcripts and references for all of those items for the news stories this week on our website at nakedscientists.com/news. Now, if you've ever been caught without a corkscrew and a very nice bottle of wine, we may have the answer for you. This is the kitchen science you need to hear. We had this question from Ian Keeling. I recently saw a video which a friend of mine uploaded to YouTube, and what it shows is someone. Holding a bottle of wine in a trainer and bashing it hard against the wall until eventually the cork comes out. How does this happen? Is it simply the pressure in the bottle acting on the cork, which eventually forces it out, or perhaps something more interesting is happening? Well, in the name of science, we've got Dave and Diana now outside, getting really rather cold. It's certainly not champagne weather, is it, Diana? But they're going to try and find out what's going on for us, Diana. No, we're out here in the、uh, BBC car park. It's pretty cold, but、um, Dave's here, braving it in a t-shirt, and he has a wine bottle and a bit of newspaper. And we're going to answer this question. So, Dave, what are we going to do? Well, I've got a bottle of wine. It's got a nice cork in it. I've taken off all the、um, wrapping and all the labels, so we can see what's going on. And now, on I've seen this on YouTube. I had to look it up, and、um, it seems to work. So what they what they were doing was they're getting a wall, something solid. We've got a metal girder here, and then they were using a shoe to protect the wine bottle from the wall. A newspaper sort of folded up, so it's about a centimeter thick. Seems to work as well. So what it seems to involve, it doesn't work if you bash the wine bottle straight down onto the floor. So it has to be against the wall. Has to be against the wall. I'm putting a newspaper up against the wall and lining up the bottle against it, and then essentially hit it dead straight into the newspaper. Okay, off you go. That's a good noise. Okay, so the bottle is getting bashed against the、uh, the newspaper on the wall there, and we're getting a sort of cloudy, bubbly mix at the、uh, the cork end of the bottle. So what's going on there? Well, I think this is really important for what's going on. To work out what's going on, I videoed this a couple of days ago in my garden with a high-speed camera, as you do. And there's a lovely video of this on the website at nakedscientists.com/kitchenscience. And what you can see is as the bottle moves forward, because the wine sort of gets left behind, the bubble gets pushed right to the front. So you've got the bubble at the front of the bottle, and、um, wine all the way to the back. The front of the bottle being the base. Yes, because it's horizontal <laughs> and you're hitting it base first against、yeah. the wall, and then when the bottle hits the wall, 
you've got all this wine moving quite fast towards the wall. It's actually only as if you dropped it sort of 10 centimetres, not too fast. And then that wants to carry on going, so it wants to squash the bubble at the front. And this produces a very, very low pressure at the back. And on for a millisecond, you can see a bubble forming. It's got a cavity at the back, in the neck of the bottle, right next to the cork. And then um, this is actually only filled with water vapour, and then that rapidly collapses. So the wine is then pulled back by this collapsing cavitation bubble and pushed back by the high-pressure um, bubble at the front of the wine bottle. And so the wine slams backwards and slams into the cork. OK, so because this cavitation bubble collapses, it makes the wine thrust towards the cork really hard, and this should push the cork out, shouldn't it? That's right. I'll give it a couple more bashes and see if we need to do <laughs> okay. anything at all. OK. We go. Oh, something's happening. Oh, there it goes. Right, we've got at least six millimetres of cork out there. That's quite impressive. It is. Um, it makes a horrible noise, so we'll um, <laughs> leave it there. You should, it should come out at least a third of the cork out, and then with our teeth you can get it out. Um, this cavitation thing is very important in real life, particularly if you're designing a propeller, because if you get these cavitation bubbles due to very low pressure around a propeller, they can then collapse, and they're incredibly violent. They can actually blow lumps out of a propeller and cause it to pit and actually eventually cause blades to fall off. <laughs> so I suppose the key is to uh, design your propeller to be extra tough. Or well, the idea is not to produce a cavitation at all in the first place. It's a lot cheaper that way. <laughs> I've heard that actually you get cavitation in your joints as well. When you, when you snap them, you hear them crack. That's actually a cavitation bubble sort of uh, imploding. Yeah, apparently at least one of the cracks, the really nasty cracks you can hear, is that cavitation bubble <laughs> collapsing. But anyway... Uh, back to the studio, Chris. Thank you very much, Diana O'Carroll, Dave Ansell. If you want to uh, look up the results of that, there's a video online, nakedscientist.com slash kitchen science to take a look. Right, let's go to our question of the week now, and Hannah Critchlow is waxing lyrical about this one. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from alpha to omega. This week, we try to defuzz a listener's hairy question. Hello, Naked Scientist. This is Muggs in Shepherd's Bush. I was in the pub just now, and, and I was thinking about something, and I think you may have the answer to this. I guess that the gene that codes for men having hairy chests and, um, and hairy backs is just an evolutionary advantage in response to some sort of environmental pressure. But how come women don't have beards in response to the same pressures? Love the show. So let's prune away at this bushy conundrum with evolutionary expert Professor Robert Foley from Cambridge University. Really, the question is why have women lost more hair in the course of our evolution than men have? If we go back to our evolutionary origins and think of the fact that we share ancestry with apes and monkeys, what is unique about humans is that we have generally lost hair. Uh, hence, you sometimes hear the expression, the naked ape. It's actually not quite true to say we are a hairless or naked ape because we've kept hair in many parts of our body and partly because we haven't actually lost the hair, it's just become highly miniaturized, almost certainly because it gave an adaptive advantage, in particular helped us keep cool, possibly related to having a more upright posture, possibly relating to being much more active and running. Now, the question being asked is, well, why aren't we all equally hairless? Well, to some extent, of course, people across the world vary enormously. And then, of course, there's a big difference between men and women. And the answer most likely is to do with sexual selection. This is the, the second of Darwin's great mechanisms, that selection doesn't just work to fit people in with a natural environment. It also comes about because individuals select the traits of the people they want to reproduce with. And probably it's the case that loss of hair, a key human characteristic, becomes more important in selecting for women, that it makes them more attractive. So while all humans have been selected to lose hair, the process of how you choose a mate has extended this much more in women than in men. So the real question, perhaps, is, you know, why should that be attractive? And I think that's probably something of a mystery. And Clifford Kay on the forum suggests that society has adapted to a preference of youthful-looking women for longer, healthy, child-bearing years. And having a hairless chin may make females look younger, providing the possible reason for this sexual selection. As summer approaches, we move on to our next question. This is David Foney from Johannesburg in South Africa. Tell me, why do toenails smell like cheese? 
So why do fetid feet have the tendency to smell like a fromagerie? Send your thoughts to chris at thenakedscientist.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page or join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. Hannah Critchlow, and that is it for this week. Thank you for joining us. Next week, we're off to Oslo in Norway to look at a marine dinosaur fossil with eyes the size of dinner plates. Look out for that next time. Thank you to producers Miris Anthelingham, Louise Anthony, Hannah Critchlow, Tom Simpkins and Ben Valsler, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. The Naked Scientists podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.